While most history enthusiasts are aware that Virginia was the leading theater of the war, many of those same people are surprised when they learn that Tennessee was second. Indeed, the Western theater of the American Civil War is shamefully neglected, despite the fact that it was in that theater where battles were fought and won that mortally wounded the Confederacy. The Battle of Nashville in December of 1864 was perhaps the most significant in helping to bring the South to its knees, and the federal officer who led that victorious army has, like the theater in which he was engaged, been overlooked. This episode hopes to bring attention and kudos to him. An officer that former naval commander and historian Thomas Buell noted was unique, a Southerner who not only remained loyal to the Union, but contributed mightily to its winning the war. Our story is about a Virginian who, despite his state's secession, chose blue. George Henry Thomas. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. The tormenting messages kept coming, all with imposing signatures at the bottom. Either Lieutenant General U.S. Grant near Petersburg, Virginia, 635 miles away, or 671 miles distant, his chief of staff, Henry Halleck, in Washington City. The federal commander in Nashville, to whom those messages were addressed, had hoped to attack John Bell Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee a few days before, but cold, sleet, and ice immobilized his Union force. From past personal history and tone of recent telegrams, that officer in Tennessee's capital sensed that Grant was after his head. So be it. To Halleck in Washington City, that general telegraphed, I have done all in my power to prepare, and if you deem it necessary to relieve me, I shall submit without a murmur. Then, on December the 11th, the most biting message. Attack regardless of the weather. Fearing the worst, the order was carried out, and sure enough, the next day, men and mounts slipped, toppled, and tumbled, the frozen conditions still holding the countryside within its icy grasp. With unanimous consent from his corps commanders, word went eastward that the fight would have to come after the ice thawed. I believed that an attack at this time would only result in a useless sacrifice of life. Just east of Petersburg, again 635 miles away, the North's sole three-star general stopped sending messages to Nashville. Instead, conditional orders were given to Major General John A. Logan of Illinois. A political general, but a solid one. He was ordered to proceed to Nashville, and if on arrival the Federal Army had not attacked, he was to assume command. 
Grant himself then traveled to Washington to confer with President Lincoln, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and Halleck about the situation in Nashville. Upon his arrival, no word had been received from Tennessee over the last 24 hours. The ice had taken down the lines, and Grant feared the worst. In the Capitol, he argued forcefully that a change had to be made. Reluctantly, Lincoln and Stanton agreed. Grant was so concerned, he decided to personally travel to Nashville, where he would assume command. But until he could get there, he prepared a message relieving the present officer and putting Major General John Schofield, who was already on the scene, in charge. Completing the telegram, Grant handed it to Stanton's chief telegraph officer, Major Thomas T. Eckert. For once, common sense triumphed. Realizing that Grant was down on a solid officer in Nashville, that Lincoln and Stanton fully appreciated the threatened officer's value, and that currently three men were in motion to take command in central Tennessee, Logan, Grant, and Schofield, Eckert decided to hold the message until he first heard from Nashville. A half hour went by, then another. Finally, about 11 p.m., about the same time Grant was about to go to bed in Willard's Hotel in preparation for departure to Tennessee the next morning, the telegraph line began its staccato ballet. Encrypted messages arrived. One was from the threatened officer himself. It had been sent around 8 o'clock the night before and had been delayed for more than a day. It read the weather had improved. The Union Army would attack the next morning. The next message to arrive was from Major John C. Van Duzer, the chief telegrapher in Nashville, and it had been sent in the last hour. It was long, some 300 words. Eckert took out his cipher book. He placed it beside Van Duzer's telegram. As the message's mystery revealed itself, Eckert's hand began to tremble. Decoding completed, he let out a cry and bolted from his office to an ambulance, always at the ready just outside the door. Wagon and passengers raced to K Street, where Stanton lived. There, Eckert leapt from the ambulance and pounded on the door. The Secretary of War appeared at an upstairs window. The two now made their way to the executive mansion. As they lurched forward, Eckert hesitantly handed Grant's telegram, the one he was supposed to send to Stanton, who asked, has this been sent? Eckert replied, no. Good, you've done the right thing. Eckert relaxed. He would not be court-martialed. Now inside the executive mansion, there at the top of the second floor landing, in nightdress with lighted candle, the tall, ghostly figure of the 16th president, he, too, approved Eckert's decision. The message? Federal Army attacked at 9 o'clock that morning. Right wing smashed Hood's Confederate line. Confederate left driven back some five miles. Confederate center driven one to three miles. From new line, our commanding general expects to drive the enemy at all points at daylight. Whole action of today splendidly successful. I have never seen better work. A copy was handed to Grant, who groused, I guess we'll not go to Nashville. 
Indeed, he would not. For Major General George Henry Thomas had done in two weeks what U.S. Grant had failed to do in the last six months, essentially destroy a Confederate army. His men called him Old Tom, Old Slow Trot. They called him Pap. The nation who already knew him as the Rock of Chickamauga would now, because of the victory in central Tennessee, call him the Sledge of Nashville. Nearly six feet tall and barrel-chested, he weighed around 200 pounds. As former naval warship commander and historian that we alluded to in our intro, Thomas B. Buell wrote in his 1997 work entitled The Warrior General's Combat Leadership in the Civil War, in military matters, Thomas was studious, deliberate, but in action, decided. So, unlike others, his solid war record was accomplished without political sponsorship. For those others, that meant promotion and choice assignments. Rather, Thomas rose to high rank on merit alone, repeatedly refusing prestigious commands if their conditions conflicted with his personal principles. In war, he mastered the art of logistics and the use of combined arms. In combat, his mind functioned with clarity, with precision. His performance and character was such that Grant regarded him a rival to the point of shamefully interfering with his command in December of 1864. Grant's jealousy, the intentional or unintentional alienation by Grant's disciples, Sherman and Sheridan, have contributed as to why old Tom's accomplishments have been muted. George Thomas deserves better, deserves to be included in the company of those just mentioned. He was that good. Also contributing to his being overlooked, the theater in which he served in the West. There are more books on Gettysburg than on the entire war in Tennessee, which, behind Virginia, was the second most active theater in the conflict. Thomas was indeed one of the war's most solid generals and perhaps, as a Civil War warrior, the most modern he was born on Wednesday, July 31, 1816. Born to slaveholders in Southampton County, Virginia. When, at 13, he lost his father, he took the lead in looking after 800 acres that his father once tended. Two years later, on August 22, 1831, he led, by carriage and then on foot, his widowed mother, three sisters, and two brothers to safety all escaping Nat Turner's bloody insurrection. Accepted to West Point, he arrived on the first day of July, 1836. His time there was similar to another Virginian, Thomas J. Jackson's. Both seemed to arrive, float about, then leave. No stories survive from Thomas's time there, even from the memoirs of one of his roommates, William T. Sherman. Still, Thomas graduated 12th of 42. He chose artillery, and for the next 15 years, he spent time at various coastal forts. 
during that span. There were campaigns against the Seminoles. And in the Mexican War, he served with Zachary Taylor as a first lieutenant of artillery. His immediate superior, a future opponent, Braxton Bragg. Even then in combat, Thomas demonstrated calmness while under fire and was exemplary at the battles of Monterey and Buena Vista, so much so that he left Mexico as a brevet major. In 1851, Thomas returned to West Point as an instructor of cavalry and artillery and assisted a new superintendent, Robert E. Lee, who in 1852 initiated positive reforms for the academy. In November of that same year, he added to his own standing. He fell in love with Frances Lucretia Kellogg, 31, who at that age and during that time was considered a spinster. In November of 52, they were married in Troy, New York. The ancestry of his bride and the site of the wedding worried his Virginia friends and family. They feared he was clipping his old Dominion ties. Despite the concern, the two were separated for two years as duty called him to the far west, where he commanded an artillery battery. To get there, he traveled by water to the Isthmus of Central America, crossed it, and then boarded another ship for California. Landing at San Diego, he then had a 150-mile trek eastward to Fort Yuma in New Mexico Territory. It was a lonely existence, and he passed time with meticulous study of the region's flora and fauna. In May of 1855, he was promoted to major and reassigned to the United States 2nd Cavalry, which patrolled the Texas frontier. His senior officers were all future Confederate generals, William Hardy, Robert E. Lee, and Albert Sidney Johnston. There in Texas, on the 26th of August, 1860, he was wounded when he took an arrow through his chin, which pinned it to his chest. During the 12 months given to him for recovery, in January of 1861, Thomas applied to be the commandant at VMI, but he was passed over. It was also about this time that in Lynchburg, Virginia, he stepped off a train to stretch his legs and lost his footing. Tumbling down an embankment, he badly wrenched his back. That injury would be telling as he lost a great deal of the agility he was known for. Later, men like U.S. Grant scornfully associated this physical handicap for sluggishness. And then in mid-April of 1861, his native Virginia seceded. Acknowledging his experience, the old Dominion wanted him to be the state's chief of ordinance. But unlike so many of his Virginia brothers, he declined. With that unpopular decision, the beginning of the American Civil War found George Thomas in Union Blue. His circumstances created a double-edged sword. He had turned his back on Virginia, and though loyal, men in Washington City, like Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, considered his Virginia ancestry a liability. Therefore, trust and assignment came slowly. His first assignment was in the Shenandoah Valley, 
and there his performance merited him a promotion to Brigadier General of Volunteers. Then in September of 1861, Washington sought to neutralize any Virginia loyalties they feared might be lingering. They sent him west to Camp Dick Robinson in Kentucky, where he found the camp a mess and morale of the men down. Undaunted, he took command of four loyal Kentucky regiments and two from eastern Tennessee and began to mold them. They became the 1st Kentucky Brigade, the nucleus of what would become the Union Army of the Cumberland, the army that historian Thomas Buell believed was the most professional and modern of all armies in the American Civil War. The 1st Kentucky's qualities surfaced on a Sunday, January 19, 1862, at Mill Springs in southeastern Kentucky. The fight there ended in federal victory, the first since the federal debacle at Bull Run six months earlier. In that one fight and victory, Thomas reclaimed one-third of the bluegrass state. Several factors guaranteed Union victory. Thomas's men used rifled muskets. Many of the Confederates used flintlocks. Thomas made excellent use of combined arms, coordinated and mutually supporting artillery and infantry. Across the way, just the opposite. In fact, Confederate artillery was never even unlimbered. After the fight, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston, who was in Bowling Green, Kentucky, did not learn of his right flank's collapse until word reached a telegraph in Nashville, Tennessee. Conversely, Washington City learned quickly because Thomas had thought to lay wire in advance. Sadly, Stanton's victory proclamation cited no names. But within a month after receiving official reports, Lincoln nominated the loyal Virginian for promotion. And on the 25th of April, 1862, Thomas became a major general. The victory at Mill Springs, or Logan's Crossroads, opened eastern Tennessee and gave Union Department Commander Major General Don Carlos Buell an excellent chance to occupy and hold Lincoln's highest personal priority in the Western Theater, eastern Tennessee. Yet, Buell shifted Lincoln's wishes to the back burner. He wanted Nashville, and he needed Thomas's men to do it. So he ordered Thomas and his force to central Kentucky. Within weeks, much to Thomas's chagrin, Confederates returned to the vacated area in eastern Kentucky. And to make matters more unsettling, a federal drive to retake the strategic area in eastern Tennessee would have to wait. Now remember, Thomas received a second star in late April. By that time, events had occurred which offer possible explanation as to why he would never get another. Four days after the Battle of Shiloh ended, Department Commander Major General Henry Halleck arrived at the battle site, Pittsburgh Landing. Soon after his arrival, he tore into Grant, who had been surprised there. Then on April the 28th, Halleck announced he would personally stay in the field and assume command of a large Union force that was organized into three wings. The Union officer John Pope would command the left with his Army of the Mississippi. The center, 
Buell with his Army of the Ohio. And on the right, Grant would continue to command the Union Army of the Tennessee. However, a few days later, Halleck rescinded the earlier organization and gave command of his right to Thomas, who had no idea that Halleck had actually expedited his promotion so that Halleck could indeed snub Grant. Grant became Halleck's second-in-command, which essentially was a meaningless position. Completely unaware, Thomas went about his assignment believing he had been selected to alleviate an emergency. He had no idea he had become a hand-picked agent in a deliberate move by Halleck to humiliate Grant. And to further turn the knife, Halleck made his headquarters near Thomas's. And when Halleck conferred with Thomas, he forced Grant to tag along. At those conferences, when Halleck asked advice of Thomas, he deliberately excluded Grant. It was so bad during Halleck's glacial crawl toward Corinth, Mississippi, that on May the 11th, 1862, Grant asked to be restored to his command or be relieved. Halleck refused both. It is likely that Grant may have indeed blamed Thomas by association for his demotion and humiliation. Eventually, Halleck's numbers forced Confederates, without a fight, to evacuate Corinth. To reward Halleck's victory, he was brought to Washington City and became Lincoln's general-in-chief. The Great Western Army now became three independent forces, and Grant was returned to command. In that reorganization, Thomas was demoted to division command and returned to Buell's Army of the Ohio, which marched for Chattanooga. The Virginian took his demotion stoically. He also probably began to sense that he had been used by Halleck. Though back in command, Grant never forgot the experience. Soon thereafter, Buell would like to have forgotten military reversals all along his front. After an agonizing 800-mile train ride, Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee beat Buell to Chattanooga. And then, teaming with a force under Edmund Kirby Smith, drove north for the Ohio River. Though the race to Louisville was won by Buell, he found himself mired in a regional command mess. With the Confederate invasion of Kentucky at hand, he tried to restore order. And while attempting to do so, a courier arrived from Washington. Buell was ordered to give command of his army to Thomas. In the midst of an active campaign, Thomas refused. He did not want to take over after so many offensive plans had been set in motion. However, regardless of Thomas's mindset, Buell followed orders. He turned over command, but Thomas telegraphed Halleck in Washington. He emphasized that Buell should be retained, and Halleck relented. Amazingly, given all the controversy, 60 miles to the southeast on Wednesday, October the 8th, 1862, Buell's federal forces outlasted Bragg's at Perryville, Kentucky, and the Confederate invasion into Kentucky was turned back. Yet, Buell's days were numbered. By late October, 
after Buell's listless pursuit of Bragg back into Tennessee stalled, a new commander was named, and very likely, due to his earlier refusal, this time, Thomas was overlooked. Instead, command went to Major General William Stark Rosecrans. It was a decision which ate at Thomas. To give Rosecrans command, Lincoln changed Rosecrans' date of rank, jumping him 39 places on the seniority list. And in this army, seniority was sacred. Thomas was angry, but he admitted he had not helped himself by refusing command earlier. Still, he put aside his personal anger and ably commanded Rosecrans Center at the Battle of Stones River. It was there on the last day of 62, and after a desperate day of battle, Thomas was one of many exhausted Union officers at a council of war that Rosecrans had called late in the evening. Rosecrans wanted to withdraw. Spent from the day, Thomas was asleep. Rosecrans woke him and asked him to command the rear guard for retreat the next day. Roused and given the order, Thomas uttered one short sentence, and it was nothing but pure grit. This army can't retreat. And then he fell back to sleep. Indeed, the Federals stayed, and three days later it was Bragg and his Confederate army that retreated. Over the next nine months, Rosecrans and Bragg shadowboxed in southeastern Tennessee. Then in September of 1863, their maneuvering took them into northwestern Georgia. On the 19th of that month, the two armies collided near Chickamauga Creek. Day one of battle was a confused and bloody series of attack and counterattack. That evening, another council of war. Rosecrans had decided to go on the defensive the next day, and while planning such, Thomas, who had had no sleep over the last 36 hours, dozed in a chair. Similar to the war council at Stones River, suddenly he awoke and proclaimed, I would strengthen the left, and then dozed off again. Rosecrans ordered just that. Battle began the next morning with Confederate attacks on the Federal left. Around 10.45 a.m. on the 20th, Rosecrans, believing a gap existed near his center, ordered Brigadier General Thomas J. Wood to slide his division to its left. Though no gap truly existed, and Wood knew it, the officer, still seething from an earlier tongue lashing for failure to promptly obey orders, did the unthinkable. Retaining the written order from Rosecrans, he moved to his left as ordered, and by doing so, created a gap, one a quarter mile wide, just as some 23,000 men under Confederate Lieutenant General James Longstreet attacked. Into the gap they poured, and the Federal Army of the Cumberland Center disintegrated. A dazed Rosecrans and his staff left the field. Only one retreat route north to Chattanooga was open, and it fell to George Thomas and his men to keep it open. Throughout that bloody Sunday afternoon, some 20,000 Confederates attacked, by Longstreet's own estimate, some 25 times, in an effort to crack Thomas's desperate defense. 
with assistance from Brigadier General Gordon Granger, who without orders moved his reserve to aid Thomas's some 5,000 men. Each Confederate surge from all points, they were broken. During the multiple assaults, Thomas seemed to be everywhere. That afternoon, he and his men were rocks of Chickamauga. They held because seeds for success had been planted earlier. Thomas's style of command and leadership demonstrated to his men that he would look after them, and they returned his commitment to them with a fighting spirit that saved that day a federal army. Here are specific examples of the seeds that Thomas did and would, if you will, distribute. To keep Rosecrans' 160-mile line of supply open all the way to and from Louisville, Thomas had established repair shops at Nashville, organized gangs of specialized workers and located material where it would be readily available. At strategic locations, he had construction trains held in readiness to quickly move to any threatened area, and he had ordered the construction of 60-foot bridge prefab trusses, which could be dropped into place by mobile railroad cranes. Now, George Thomas couldn't prevent Confederate raids and subsequent damage, but his system made it possible for immediate repair and therefore kept food and material flowing to the men of the Army of the Cumberland. His staff was one of the most efficient, and that's because he received permission to select them. And with that latitude, he surrounded himself with experts and specialists. His staff numbered 19, large by any standard, but its size was needed for modern warfare. His headquarters, unlike most, acted with precision, with purpose. Thomas set up a reliable and rapid communication system. Not only did he make use of visual communication, but added telegraph. He laid wire where he was, and his telegraph operators were well-paid, intelligent citizens. He put together what very well may have been the first mobile command post in any American army. A specially made wagon with desk and file drawers for his clerks and telegraphers. It sent and received dispatches. Generals in World War II would use similar facilities. Thomas created a mobile field hospital system that saved countless lives. He was meticulous in his recording and in his making and securing accurate maps. He became familiar with all roads in the area, bridges and fords. He calculated tonnage for bridges so that loaded wagons would not cause them to collapse. He figured distances between points, noted road conditions and carrying capacities, highlighted river crossings, landmarks, potable water sites, forage, cover, even assessed the loyalties and trustworthiness of local citizens. In other words, George Henry Thomas was a logistical master. His reports unbelievably detailed quartermaster stores such as horses, mules, wagons, harnesses, clothing, camp, and gear. It is safe to say that no other Civil War officer's official reports were as comprehensive as his. To him, attention to detail paid off in combat. 
His condition, clothed, armed, and properly equipped men sensed their general care deeply for them, and consequently a bond developed. He, fatherlike, guided, taught, nurtured, and in return expected great things. Perhaps that's why his men called him Old Pap. And again, that's why all afternoon and into the evening, his men held Horseshoe Ridge and Snodgrass Hill at Chickamauga. Though defeated that day, the Army of the Cumberland did escape to fight another day and would soon, for Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee did pursue. True, the pursuit was slow, but Bragg's army essentially besieged Rosecrans' force at Chattanooga. Nearly severed from their supply line, the Army of the Cumberland's rations dwindled and morale suffered. With resurging Confederate efforts and success in the West, Lincoln and Secretary of War Stanton began a purge of the Army of the Cumberland's officers, two corps commanders, Major Generals Alexander McCook and Thomas Leonidas Crittenden were relieved of their command. And as the semi-siege stretched into October, Lincoln knew that Rosecrans had to go. Once again, George Thomas was approached. And once again, George Thomas said no. He declined because he was loyal to Rosecrans. To the Virginian, even the discussion of taking over hinted of intrigue. On October the 4th, Thomas's thank you but no thank you message went to Washington. He would not be party to political intrigue or to the humiliation of another. And then, on October the 17th, U.S. Grant was placed in charge of the Union Military Division of the Mississippi. Two days later, a message reached Chattanooga. No longer would George Thomas be asked to take command, for Grant ordered him to do so. And he also demanded, hold Chattanooga at all hazards. I will be there as soon as possible. Please inform me how long your present supplies will last and the prospects for keeping them up. In typical detailed fashion, Thomas answered, 204,462 rations in the storehouses, 90,000 to arrive shortly. And then he vowed, I will hold this town till we starve. Despite their bittersweet history, Grant liked the answer. On Friday, October the 23rd, Grant arrived in Chattanooga after dark. He found the town and soldiers broken by the misery of their semi-besieged state. Yet Grant noticed that Thomas's headquarters contrasted greatly with the despondency outside. Within, the atmosphere was cool, efficient, almost intimidating to an outsider. During Thomas and Grant's first meal together, not one word was spoken. The whole environment, businesslike. Regardless what Grant may have thought about Thomas, he knew he had to work with him. And though Thomas may have resented the inference that Grant was there to rescue him and his army, Thomas suppressed any hint of personal animosity. However, this entente did not last long. 
It began to sour with Grant's belief that the Army of the Cumberland was demoralized and dispirited. To remedy that, he set into motion a plan that actually Thomas and another had drawn up earlier. In action at Brown's Ferry, a cracker line, a shorter and more efficient route to reach desperately needed food and supplies, was opened. Then, responding to pressure from Washington, Grant ordered Thomas to attack the dug-in Confederates atop Missionary Ridge. Immediately, Thomas recognized the order for what it was, posturing. To appease an edgy capital, Grant was being rash. Thomas surmised that if he, as ordered, attacked from the north, he would leave Chattanooga uncovered. A fellow officer, William F. Baldy Smith, agreed, and since he had a longer history with Grant, Thomas convinced Smith to go to him. Point made, Grant countermanded the order, but in doing so was angered and embarrassed. First, angered, because Thomas had exposed flaw in Grant's thinking. Second, embarrassment, for Grant had told Halleck and others that the proposed attack was his idea. Now he was going to have to back down. The early attempts at a working relationship were coming apart. Grant longed to have someone around more to his style and liking, more at ease with his casual ways. He wanted Sherman who arrived November the 15th with his four divisions. And with their arrival, George Thomas began to feel second fiddle and felt that way for his army as well. He desperately wanted to do something to restore his army's morale, one suffering from intentional and unintentional slights from Grant and his staff. On the 23rd of November, Thomas and the Army of the Cumberland got their chance. Philip Sheridan and Thomas J. Wood's divisions, two divisions that had fled at Chickamauga and were itching to restore their reputations, were ordered by Thomas to give the Federals a little breathing room. On that Monday, those two divisions from the Army of the Cumberland captured Orchard Knob. The besieged were now a mile closer to Confederate-held Missionary Ridge. The next day, Grant ordered Joseph Hooker's corps to take Lookout Mountain. Climbing through the fog of that Tuesday, they were successful. To build all that federal momentum, Grant now planned to hit Bragg from three directions. Hooker would hit the Confederate left, Sherman would strike Bragg's right, and Thomas's Army of the Cumberland would strike the Confederate center at Missionary Ridge, but only as a diversion. The assignment stung Thomas and his army. Nevertheless, on the 25th, a clear, bright day, Grant and Thomas watched the progress of the battle from recently occupied Orchard's Knob. As that Wednesday progressed, Hooker's men ran into problems. So did Sherman's. Then came one of the most dramatic moments of the American Civil War. As a diversion, Thomas's Army of the Cumberland had been ordered to move only on the first and lowest of three sets of Confederate trenches as they climbed up Missionary Ridge. After taking their objective, they were to halt. But at half past three, Grant, from below at Orchard's Knob, saw blue 
tongued formation streaking up and past the lowest trenches. Turning, he growled, who ordered those men up the ridge? To that, Thomas answered calmly, I don't know. I did not. To one of Thomas's corps commanders, Grant asked, did you order them up, Granger? Struggling to keep from gloating, Granger answered, no, they went up without orders. And when those fellows get started, all hell can't stop them. Grant muffled a reply, something to the effect that if the attack failed, somebody was going to pay. Indeed, he was watching a general's nightmare, a battle gone out of his control, but one that gave the North one of its most unexpected and dramatic victories of the entire conflict. On a three-mile front, screaming, remember Chickamauga, George H. Thomas's Army of the Cumberland redeemed itself. They almost captured Bragg in his headquarters, routed his army from their positions. And delirious with excitement, Gordon Granger wrote about his victorious men and mocking their exceeding of their orders, gloated, I'm going to have you all court-martialed. For the stirring victory at Chattanooga, Grant got a third star and was promoted to overall command. For Sherman, command of all in the West. Sheridan was transferred east to be with Grant. Back east, the hero of Gettysburg, George Gordon Meade, fully expected to be replaced, not by any of the three just mentioned, but by George Thomas. But that was not to be. Thomas retained command of the Army of the Cumberland and was to be one of three armies that would comprise Sherman's force as he initiated his Atlanta campaign. Teamed with his old West Point roommate, Thomas, with the largest of the three armies, aided Sherman in significant ways with his great attention to detail and preparation. He organized volunteer pioneer battalions, provided excellent maps, concede folding canvas pontoons, and amassed solid intelligence and reconnaissance. So great was his assistance that on September the 4th, 1864, two days after Atlanta fell, Sherman wrote to Henry Halleck in Washington, George Thomas, you know, is slow, but as true as steel. The man who captured Atlanta now envisioned another campaign, one across Georgia, but the Confederate Army of Tennessee, now under John Bell Hood, planned a campaign of his own. He moved north, back into Tennessee, and he wanted to head for the Ohio River. Unlike Lee, who was, at that time, pinned down at Petersburg, Virginia, Hood wanted to wreck Sherman's supply line and turn federal strategy in the West on its head. Despite that possibility, Sherman received Grant's blessing to make his march across Georgia, but somebody was going to have to deal with Hood, and Thomas was selected. He was sent back to Tennessee with some 35,000 men, men that Sherman did not want for his campaign. Thomas's 35,000 would be outnumbered and considered by Sherman as second-rate. Washington eventually understood that Thomas needed far more, so 35,000 more men were sent to him from scattered points. In independent command, Pap Thomas acted with creative thinking. 
His cavalry would fight dismounted and with repeating rifles and employed in coordination with the infantry. To protect his supply lines, repair shops with specialized crews would be organized, construction trains, prefab bridges, the 60-foot trusses and 60-foot sections, and mobile railway cranes mentioned earlier. And again, incredibly meticulous inventories. As he put it, the fate of an army may depend on a buckle. All that would be needed because Hood and his Confederate Army of Tennessee moved northward on three parallel roads and gave battle at Spring Hill, Tennessee on the 29th of November at Franklin the next day, and pressed on toward the largest Union depot in the land, Nashville. Washington was concerned. And from Petersburg, Grant hounded, badgered, and prodded. As we opened, Grant, 635 miles away, was completely unaware of conditions and circumstances. But no matter, he ordered Thomas to attack as early as December the 6th, Thomas wanted to wait on cavalry mounts and repeaters to use, as we mentioned in a coordinated fashion with his infantry and artillery. But Grant did not want to wait. And so, and again, 635 miles away, his orders and threats continued. And yet, at the decisive Battle of Nashville, with federal cavalry fighting dismounted, giving battle with repeating rifles and in coordination with Union infantry, Hood's Confederate force was shattered. And the great Union victory there, fought December 15, 16, and 1864, Thomas suffered 3,061 federal casualties, only 6% of his force, while inflicting around 6,000 Confederate casualties 25% of Hood's army, and 4,500 of those some 6,000 were captured. More importantly, he had wrecked the Confederate Army of Tennessee. Back in the East, an appreciative Washington city ordered 100-gun salutes. The Rock of Chickamauga was now the sledge of Nashville. And two weeks in December 1864, George Thomas and his force had successfully done, as we mentioned earlier, what U.S. Grant had not done in six months, destroy a Confederate army. However, from Petersburg, frantic orders, pursue, pursue, and Thomas did. Twelve days of pursuit over 100 miles, chasing Hood and his army all the way back into North Alabama for his efforts on Christmas Day. Thomas received word that he was promoted to Major General of Regulars. However, beaten down by abuse from Grant and Halleck, he tossed the message to the floor and said, I earned that a year ago at Chattanooga. Despite the promotion, two weeks later, Grant hit again. He wanted a winter campaign. Thomas said fine, but he wanted to refit Within days of that message, U.S. Grant relieved him of command. His war over. Later, the Virginian learned why John Logan arrived in his camp just before the Battle of Nashville. He also learned of Grant's message relieving him. 
the one that Telegraph Officer Eckert wisely held. The revelations hurt him. Despite the sniping and snubs, he remained in uniform and after the war conducted enlightened, fair leadership in several southern states. Tennessee, the state he served in the most, reaped the fruit of his guidance. It was the first to be readmitted to the Union. In appreciation, the volunteer state voted him a gold medal on the anniversary of his victory at Nashville. They even made him an honorary resident. In his native Virginia, his family had disavowed him. He hated military politics, and now was added Reconstruction politics. Without ever asking Thomas, the new president, Andrew Johnson tried to name him the new general-in-chief after Grant was elected president in November of 1868. When Thomas learned of Johnson's intent, he declined. In the future, there were offers for him to run for the presidency. He declined them all. Almost as if to escape, he asked for and received command of the Military Division of the Pacific. Yet, even there, he could not escape the jealousy and ill will from back east. He learned of a letter that was making the rounds that gave a fellow officer, John Schofield, all the credit for the victory at Nashville. Though he would destroy all his personal papers and write no memoirs, this time he decided his men would not be slighted. He decided to respond. It was while he was forming his response on active duty in San Francisco that he was struck down by a stroke. It was Monday, March 28, 1870. He was only 53 years of age. As a special train brought him back east, a grateful nation mourned. Silent, respectful crowds gathered at every station. His final resting place where he was married almost 18 years before, Troy, New York. Today, an equestrian statue in the nation's capital honors him. And unlike then, today, Southampton County, Virginia, proudly claims his birthplace. Oh, among the thousands who gathered at his funeral, Grant and Sherman, two powerful men, in part, because of George Henry Thomas, whose victories gave them the chance to be powerful. Next episode, the story of an 1864 campaign that Confederate full General John Bell Hood hoped would dramatically turn the tide of the war in the West. Instead, it proved to be disastrous. We'll chronicle the opposing generals, their armies, and conditions that led to a Confederate attack that would rival Gettysburg's picket, Pettigrew, Trimble charge. One that would be greater in number, but just as doomed. Next time we gather, the Battle of Franklin. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.